Hello and welcome to Crystal Queer, the radio podcast show presented by YGN Radio Brighton, hosted by me, Ali, and sponsored by Scene Magazine Brighton, the only free-to-read LGBTQ plus magazine in the UK. Uh, once again, my name is Ali. I am the head of social media and content creator at YDN Radio Brighton. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who is one of my very own lecturers at the Uni of Brighton. I'm going to let him introduce himself. So please let us know your name, your pronouns, and a little fun fact about you. Oh, I see. Um, my name is uh, Paul Ryan, and I'm a senior lecturer in media studies at the University of Brighton. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And uh, fun fact about me. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess know, it's a fun, fun fact for me, I don't know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a huge gamer, I guess, that's a, that's another side of there my, my yeah. I also involved yeah. in my teaching as well, yeah. people don't expect yeah. academics to be, you know, <laughs> in, big into kind of video games, but here I am. I mean, to be fair, like, when I first came to uni last year, I remember the first day that I was in uni, you brought in, like, an Xbox and all those little games and stuff, that's I was, right. like, I was yeah. not expecting this to be happening, but yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, that's, that's a, uh, well, that's funny. I've just start, I've just actually finished teaching one of the, the video game module that I teach, and it is. I think students find it quite uh, mind blowing at first that they're going to actually be doing a module where they're playing video games. You know, yeah. and that's learning. <laughs> I mean, I, this, there's a reason I love media studies, and this is this is the reason why I love media studies, basically. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, you're a senior lecturer of film studies, and I obviously take well took now a film studies uh, module with you, which just makes sense and why we would be sitting down to talk about film in general, sure. specifically queer yeah. films. Um, so I'm just going to start off with the first question of what do you think makes a film queer? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question, isn't it? Um, I, th I think for me, a queer film is a film that is um, produced, I mean, the purest form, if I'm talking about the kind of purest form of what a queer film is, it's a film that's kind of produced, whether it's written or directed by a queer person who is exploring some aspect of queer identity and that it's also aimed at predominantly queer audience. So we're kind of in a a kind of hermetically sealed world in that kind of version of a queer film, which is, it's not trying to talk to the outside world, it's not trying to make apologies for who we are or how we live our lives. It's talking to a knowledgeable audience, you know, it's, I guess it's probably setting up a kind of conversation between the film and the audience and the filmmaker about, you know, what queer life is about or some aspect of that is, I guess. So that'd be the purest definition. Obviously that's, I would say that queer movie, you know, a queerness in a movie is in the eye of the beholder, you know, I think that uh, there's lots of different ways of defining a queer film more generally, I guess. I mean, Susan Sontag uh, famously defined queer as being the opposite of everything, which is very helpful. Um, but I suppose if you think about in culture, heterosexuality is everything often in culture, I guess. So that means that queerness is the opposite of that. So maybe that's one way of thinking about it, that maybe a, a queer film is one that is un, uninterested in repeating kind of heteronormative models about how to live yeah. your life. Um, I think was, I think I remember reading about Todd Haynes, and he's a, he's a queer filmmaker. Um, he was one of the contributors to what we call now new queer cinema back in the 1990s. It, probably his most famous recent film is Carol with um, Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Um, he was asked that question, and he was quite dismissive of the term gay cinema. He said that often people define it just about content of is there a gay character in it, or you know, then it's a gay film, and I, and I don't think that's enough either. And he's, he, he talks, it kind of ties in with what Susan Sontag was saying. He talks about heterosexuality being um, a structure as much as it is content. So heterosexuality structures the way that you live your life. Um, it um, is the kind of dominant structure in the patriarchy that constrains and defines us, you know, whether if we are um, 
heterosexual and you know then there's a sense that we'll we'll meet somebody we'll get married we'll have kids mm -hmm. that whole structure of your life is mapped out so that's what he suggests so he he says that or his argument Todd Haynes argument is that homosexuality is the opposite of that it's a kind of counter sexual activity mm. um so it's films that are queer are asking what kind of structure would there be if it's the opposite of heterosexuality for example so i think that's that's one way of thinking about it maybe yeah um and i it's think almost like it's it's mm -hmm. kind of like the rebellious genre almost of cinema because it's like you said it's the opposite of everything that's already been stated as a staple of cinema and then it's just rebellious yeah well, no absolutely i think i mean that, that term there's a kind of genre that new queer cinema which emerged in the early 1990s and it was defined by uh, a woman called ruby b ruby rich who was writing in sight and sound which is the british film institute's uh, magazine and she identified this strand of films that seemed to emerge at that time which were angry and political and fun and celebratory um which were exploring kind of queer a queer sensibility queer life and obviously in its in the context this was coming out of the aids epidemic and so a lot of these films the anger was to do with that i guess and so they were challenging not just the structure of heterosexuality but they were often challenging the structure of mainstream film there a lot of these films um like poison which is also a film by todd haynes um, they're quite challenging films to watch because they're not you know they they, they skew kind of mainstream narrative structure beginning middle and end so yeah quite elite quite elitist i guess as well which is a, which is a problem but um but i guess I was, I was thinking about modern films that um for me that have that kind of sense of challenging the structure of heterosexuality and again the film i'm going to i'm just going to mention was a film called strictly ballroom i yes. don't know if you've seen it yeah so it's a film by uh, Baz Luhrmann. it was one of his first films and it's about um it's set in the world of ballroom dancing and the main character is scott um who is is heterosexual in the film but we found out he he has a romantic relationship during the film but to my mind the film is as queer as queer can be because the film opens with a kind of dancing sequence intercut with him dancing and his mother's response and she's distressed beyond belief you know she's at the line something like oh is it something i've done is it my fault that i fail him as a mother and i'm thinking is he gay? Is that is this is he is he come out? Yeah. But that's not what it is. What it is is that Scott wants to dance his own steps, which are not officially sanctioned by the, the dancing federation. And so um that's what the problem is. And he's ostracized because he's not going to dance the same steps as everyone else. So it's a film about being true to yourself, being authentic. So there's that kind of allegoric thing that is challenging the structure of heterosexuality in, in a sense, the dance world stands in for heterosexuality and if you don't fit in then you're you're ostracized which is an experience of many kind of queer people i think and actually there's a line in the film or a phrase that's repeated quite a bit um which is a life lived in fear is a life have lived half lived and that, that to me when i remember watching the film it reminded me at the time because act up the kind of queer activist group were, were very prominent at that time and their slogan was silence equals death and there seemed to be a link between those two things so the film is about all of those things it's not it's not uh, a film with a gay character it's not a film that is has a kind of gay narrative but to me it's a queer film because it's challenging the structure of heterosexuality and it's one that as a as a queer person watching it my view is is that it, it seemed to kind of speak to me at that level about some of the challenges that people face when they're outside the mainstream if that makes sense yeah i think it's really interesting that, it's, <laughs> that to be a queer film it doesn't have to necessarily be a purely queer narrative anything that kind of just goes against the 
um, stereotypical heteronormative narrative can automatically be considered a queer mm -hmm. film. Um, and I, I guess that kind of ties in with what I wanted to ask you about. Do you think that in a queer film that does follow LGBT characters, do you think actors that aren't necessarily a part of the LGBT community diminish um, the queerness of the film, or do you think it doesn't really matter? Yeah, see, that's a difficult question as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because <clears throat> it's a very loaded question politically, mm. because it gets people very upset. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, there's a sense that what you're asking, I guess, fundamentally, it's a question of what, what do actors do? And an actor, uh, you know, interprets, inhabits a character is fundamentally not them. But we're saying that there are some limitations on, on that. Um, now, I think it, there's certainly limitations in place in terms of race and ethnicity, and we that, that's accepted. We think, yeah, a black actor should play a black role, we shouldn't have a white person playing a black role in blacking it. That's, that's, that, that argument's over, that's done. Um, and that's largely because we don't want to see Leonardo DiCaprio playing Martin Luther King, yeah. God forbid, no. <laughs> which would, uh, would be horrendous. Um, but then do we want to have the same, or can we have the same demarcation lines when it comes to sexuality? Um, is queerness a protected characteristic in the same way that race and ethnicity is? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I think if it came to playing a trans character, I think now, yes. I think if, since, I mean, it's the, the argument is, is clear, you know, uh, a trans woman is a woman, a trans man is a man. Therefore, we should have a trans male or female actor playing that role because we wouldn't have a woman being played by a man in a film unless we're doing it for artistic or artistic or political reasons, I guess. So I was thinking about, um, there's a film Orlando by Sally, Sally Potter, which is an adaptation of um, a book by, um, I've got her name now, it's going out of my head. Um, that's terrible. Anyway, so, there's not a, so this film Orlando is uh, about Queen Elizabeth I and Orlando is her kind of suitor, as it were. Now, Queen Elizabeth is played by Quentin Crisp, who's a, a gay man. Um, and Orlando is played by, um, I forgot her name now. Uh, oh, uh, Sorry, I've got her name completely forgotten now. All right, Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. How could I forget yes, Tilda yeah. Swinton? So it's, yeah, so Orlando's played by Tilda Swinton, and Orlando is both male and female, and at various points in the film is depicted as being male and being female, and that's Sally Potter making a point about the film itself, about the story itself, about kind of gender transitivity and so forth. Where the same thing actually in uh, I'm Not There, which is uh, another film by um, yeah. Todd Haynes. Which is obviously reflecting on the life of Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is played by a variety of aspects of Bob Dylan are played by different actors. One of whom is Kate Blanchett. Mm -hmm. um, so again, there may be political or or creative reasons why a director might want to, um, you know, play with the gender boundaries. But I guess that's not necessarily the same question as what you're asking me about cis and uh, you know whether cis actors should play it trans or a queer character it's an interesting topic though as well because um i completely agree with you in terms of especially in in trans movies that there should just be a trans person playing the roles but i've always had the question and i i had an episode last week with a trans guest and he didn't really mind um but i've always wondered if 
a trans person playing a trans role in a movie, considering, let's say, that the, the role in the movie, at that point, the character hasn't transitioned yet, I've always thought, would that kind of cause some sort of gender dysphoria for the trans actor that is playing the role, maybe? Or would they have a different person playing that role? But then on the mm. other hand, we've also got an actor like Elliot Page, who's still playing his same role on Umbrella Academy, even yeah. though that, yeah. that character is a cis woman. And it is quite interesting. And I think that's quite fascinating, actually, to see that. I think it's really brave. Yeah, and it is, it is really complicated because I think, you know, there's so many examples of straight actors playing gay roles, which uh, you know, where they do a, 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 offer a really authentic um, depiction of the character that they're playing. Um, I guess, um, I, mean, I suppose the question I was thinking about was supposing you've got a character in a film, because it, it comes down to kind of binarism again, the, about how we think about gay and straight and queer and non-queer and all the rest of it. If you've got a character in a film who's maybe, you know, on the Kinsey scale, they're yeah. they're predominantly straight, but not 100% straight. Mm -hmm. So maybe there are two on the Kinsey scale from if zero is completely heterosexual and six is completely homosexual, there are two. How do you go about casting that character? What kind of conversations do you have with an actor to say, yeah. we want to, we want a two in this role? Mm -hmm. And the actor's like, I don't know how to define myself. You know, is yeah. it yeah. so it's complicated. It and is. also there may be financial reasons why, you know, a particular character gets cast in a role. I was thinking about Milk. Now Milk is a great film about you know a gay icon. Yeah. But but we have a straight actor in the lead role. Why is that the case? Well, it's about money because if you have a big star um, in a in a film like Sean Penn playing that role, yeah, then they they attract the backers and the money. So without him being there, the film doesn't get made. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'd, I thought he did a good job. I and mean, I've seen the Life in Terms of Harvey Milk the documentary about Milk's life. And when I first watched Milk the drama, um, I thought he was lip syncing to a recording of Harvey Milk. That's how good his interpretation of the voice was. So I completely bought into what he was saying, you know, and how he, how he played the role. And also you've got a queer director, Gus Van Sand, who's making the film. Does that affect it? You know, it's, That's very it's, true, yeah. Uh, you know, is that, it, it's not necessarily the same as something like Ang Lee directing Broke That Mountain with two heterosexual actors. Um, I think when it has like a queer know. director doing it, it kind of adds that conversation of like, um, well, if if a straight person can play a queer person, then a queer person can play a straight person. They shouldn't be pigeonholed into playing just queer roles because no. you're a queer person. Um, I think the I think the argument always seems to be around this topic is that gay people, queer people, spend the first part of their life acting straight. Yeah. So we're all very good at being straight, but that's not true for straight people. Straight exactly. people don't ever have to don't ever have to do that. So there's a it's not an equivalent experience. You know, in a sense, you know, gay people, queer people live in a straight world. Mm -hmm. um, um, straight people live in a straight world. Basically. You know, and that's that's a distinction, I think. But I was thinking just on the same lines as, as the point about milk. I mean, something like Boys Don't Cry, which is, has, you know, has, has won, won so many accolades. Um, it's an amazing film. But you've got Hilary Swank, you know, a cis woman playing a trans female to male um, teen. But the director, Kimberly Pierce, she identifies herself as, as genderqueer, I think, you know, and again, Hilary Swank being in that film meant that it got made, meant that it got traction. So there's, it, you know, if we're being purist, we could say, no, it should be a trans person playing that role. 
But then if the consequence of that purity is that the film doesn't get made, who does that help? You know, I think sometimes we have to be pragmatic about things, even if in an ideal world we'd want things to be different. Um, it is a very, it's a very loaded question. Like it, it's, there's such a strong debate about it and no one seems to know exactly what they would be happy with at the end of the day. And I think that's gonna always be a question that just stays in the air. Are people gonna be happy with it or not? And I don't think it's ever going to have an answer probably. And now let's listen to some music. So seeing as this week, the topic has been film and queer films, it only made sense to wanna to play a music by an artist that I consider to be an indie movie little soundtrack and a little gay indie movie soundtrack, obviously, because this is crystal queer. And today I'm going to be playing you a song by one of my favorite queer indie folk artists, Kuza. And this is from his debut album, Our Day. And this is the title track, Our Day. down a very long road with a little bit of music in the background and 
just having a great time. <laughs> um, and now back to some more Crystal Queer. I do want to ask if you have some of your own favorite queer movies. Um, what are what are some of your favorites, regardless of the conversation of um, you know cis people playing queer roles? Yeah, it's funny. So favorite films are interesting because I think I realized that I I started uni in ninety one, which is when new queer cinema mm -hmm. arrived, and yep. also when queer theory really started arriving. So it was a really exciting time. So I think I realized that quite a few of the films that I've identified as being kind of favorites are films from around that time, and often it's a nostalgic thing about that as well. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a newness as well because you you never forget. It's because you never forget your first kiss, you never forget your yeah. first queer film. There's something along those lines that it does kind of uh, kind of stick with you, I guess. Mm -hmm. I suppose uh, for me, um, I mean, I enjoyed all the kind of the queer films like uh, Swoon and uh, Poison. They are challenging, I guess, to an extent. But I did enjoy um, a particular this one film uh, called World in Time Enough, wow. and it's it, it's from 1993. And it's about a queer couple, uh, two gay men, and it, it's it has the anger and the politics of what new queer cinema is about. You know, it's set in the age of AIDS. One of the characters is HIV positive. He's an activist. He has all these kind of dead end day jobs that he does as a temp, and it, he's also out doing installations. And it's all kind of fuck you, basically the world, and it's all and you know anti. Uh, Anti the Bush government at the time, and uh, and you know, pro-abortion, and you know, pro-queer, anti-heterosexual. So, so it's a pol political thing that he's doing. Um, his partner is a refuse collector, and he's collecting all these. When he's collecting rubbish, he also picks things out of the refuse that he keeps and collects. And what's interesting is that the the character who's who has HIV positive, his mother, you find out in a flashback, is has died, was killed actually. In a church, when the giant cross crucifix fell on her, so I wonder what that's message of that's telling us. So he's kind of obsessed with cathedrals. He's kind of building a cathedral as well, and there's all this. So it's a it's a it's a really great film with really great characters, and and maybe it's a bit when I saw it, but I really enjoyed the positivity of the film as well. That that perhaps um, managed to combine politics with being also entertaining and not not too you know. Separate, exclusive, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think like um, queer films. I I still need to get into a bit more of like the older older queer films that I guess, like you said, kind of started off the queer theory conversation in films. Um, yeah, I mean, because it's, it's interesting because there's certainly one. I would say a good starting point for new queer cinema is yeah. uh, a film by Greg Araki. Um, yeah. So he made a film called The Living End, which is about two. Um, gay outlaws on the run and it's a kind of a kind of road movie kind of <clears throat> and again it's another one of these angry one of the one of the characters has just found out he's got uh, HIV this is 1991 so it's a death sentence so there's a sense that if your life's going to be short anyway just fuck the world basically that's what it is yeah. <clears throat> but I think his next film after that was um, a film called Totally Fucked Up which is about mm -hmm. a group of six teenagers in LA and what's nice about the film is that they are um, mixed in terms of race and gender. So there's you know, lesbian couple, there's kind of bisexual kind of, um, there's uh, the kind of gay couple as well in the center of it. And it just explores teenagers growing up in a world of AIDS, <clears throat> you know, where they're concerned, they're, you know, they've got this disease that seems to be, you know, targeting them. How do they talk about it? And it's actually really entertaining. It's a bit introspective. Teenagers are very self-obsessed and it is that, but it's really funny. It's entertaining. It's got a great soundtrack. 
Um, and I would say that's a more accessible way into new queer cinema. Um, but the thing is, new queer cinema came, you know, it, it was already happening, queer cinema was happening long before that. And I think just, and it feels like all we're talking about is AIDS and HIV, but it is, it was the catalyst for new queer cinema, but it was also what put the brakes on other kinds of queer cinema. So there's two films from 1985, one called Buddies and uh, one called um, uh, buddies and uh, parting glances. They're both about the same kind of topic about characters dealing with having a, an AIDS diagnosis and a, a diagnosis that is terminal, essentially. Buddies is low budget, it's just two characters and it's about a, a young gay man who wants to give something back. So he uh, signs up as a buddy where he visits and supports uh, a, young, a young man of the same age of him who's dying of AIDS. You know, as a friend, and it's about their friendship and relationship developing in that kind of context. Parting glances is a bit more complicated. It's about you know a, a gay man whose friends, his I think his ex is now in a new relationship and want he has AIDS and his ex partner doesn't and so forth. So it's exploring that. It's a yeah, it's a great film. Both those directors that made that that made those films, they were dead months within months of the releases of their films. Oh wow! And you sort of think. And they died of complications from AIDS. Right. And so you think, without AIDS, what other films would they have made? Yeah. And yeah. without AIDS, what narratives would be being told of gay men, particularly? You know, how different would they be? And you get a glimpse of that if you look back even further. So into the 1970s, there's a there's a film uh, called um, Saturday Night at the Baths, I think it's called. Um, and um, what's interesting about that is that it's it's exploring a time when hedonism was just kind of starting I guess and um, there was a sense that this was before AIDS where everything was hopeful and the world was um, less uh, you know was, was being more open to being gay and so forth I guess um, and in a sense that film kind of that kind of world just kind of snuffed out a few years later um, around the same time as another film a very natural thing I think these films are now on Amazon they were really hard to get hold of at first so a very natural thing again is about this it opens with a, a documentary footage of um, pride in 1973 new york in christopher street and it's juxtaposed with the main characters at this point is a is a is a, a monk in his robes disrobing because he's leaving that to become a, a teacher and so you've got that juxtaposition of the kind of faith and the kind of structure of the patriarchy and it's a documentary footage mixed with you know with filmed um, uh, drama so again, it's it's anticipating some of the things that happened with queer cinema later on, you know, that was challenging the structure of cinema and so forth. But it, it explores all the issues that are kind of common, you know, at that time. It was, you know, what is, you know, he 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 meets somebody, he falls in love, he wants to be monogamous, his partner wants to have, you know, an open relationship. Um, it explores those issues in a non-judgmental way. That, you know, that it's it's do we want to replicate and be assimilated into heterosexual? What a sexual world, a patriarchal society, or do we want to forge our own ways of living our lives, having our relationships? And the film explores those kind of dualities really, really clearly. It's it's a low budget film. It's quite difficult to watch in places because of technical issues. Yeah. But again, you think about these filmmakers that probably, again, they will have probably died during the AIDS epidemic itself. And so there's some as an ending of those kind of stories and a beginning of something new, which is where kind of queer kind of films come in, I guess. I think what I what I noticed from you talking about the older movies is that it seems like that some of the older movies seem to have touched on topics that aren't as touched on anymore, um, such as the AIDS pandemic. 
And mm. um, it's interesting because it almost feels like you would think that because a movie is older, it would be more backwards in thinking, but it seems to be more progressive even. Yeah, um, I suppose I think, and, yeah, and I think certainly films like Buddies and Parting Glances, that's very much the case. And try and think about them, that was 1985. They were in the midst of a pandemic that they didn't, there was no cure. Yeah. Nobody really understood where it was. So they were trying to make sense of it as they were going along. It's, it's, it's funny because I was watching the Russell D. T. Davis series, It's a Sin, which has the benefit of hindsight looking back. Now I know that that it did often, there was lots of kind of very emotional moments in that series where characters died, but we know the ending. The ending's a happy ending for AIDS and HIV now. Um, but if you were living in the middle of a pandemic, it certainly wasn't. So films like I say, like Buddies and uh, Parting Glances, they're trying to make sense of something that they don't understand in the middle of it. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And I think that's why they're, they are um, moments in time. They're historical kind of documents, I guess. But they're also, they anticipate what's going to kind of come later on as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, I want to get into, into queer people of colour representation in movies. Um, mm. I think that's definitely one of the more recent debates of like there isn't enough of that being made and there isn't enough of that representation being shown, which I completely agree with. I mean, and there are obviously representations, but it's just not as mainstream as it should be. And then obviously there was Moonlight that did win at the Oscars, but even that it felt, I don't know, this might be controversial, it might not be controversial, but to me it felt possibly forced because during that time it was a very big conversation on Black movies in general not being represented, and then all of a sudden, there goes a Black queer movie that wins the Oscars. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think some things, things are about a time and a place. Um, things coalesce that enable, in this case, something like Moonlight to be made. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's sorry to be, probably seems a little bit boring to talk about this, but it's often about finance mm -hmm. and risk. And so if producers or people putting up money to make a film feel that there's a reasonable chance they'll get a, re a return on it, yeah. they're not they tend not to be moral or ethical about this their their, their morality is money yeah. so if if you come to them with an idea and say it's a movie but a black gay character and they're like will it make me money and you can say yes it will then okay yeah, here's yeah, the money. Yeah. you know that's so i think that's i mean i i, I thought moonlight was a great film and i think sometimes we think because a film wins awards and somehow we should be a bit more um questioning of its authenticity mm -hmm. you know because lots of films that win oscars are not that great yeah in that sense <laughs> Um, but I think it does stand up to, and actually, again, just to go back to new career cinema, structurally, it's quite complicated. It's that triptych, you know, it's the kind of three ages of, of the, the main character. And, you know, and it kind of blurs those lines. And it's even, I think, in the first section of that film, I remember being really impressed by how little is said, but how much is shown in terms of how it explores, you know, racism, homophobia, even a young boy who hasn't quite understood to voice his own sexuality yeah. in a sense so I, th I thought i thought it did a really good job um i think it's partly the the, the relative scarcity of film of black films about black queer identity i think that this the scarcity of those films is a consequence of racism generally about lack of access that black filmmakers have to funding and so forth and so it's bad enough you know, you've got a double whammy you've got you're dealing with racism and you're dealing with homophobia at the same time so you're in a much more difficult position than if you even if you were a black heterosexual filmmaker you know so that people like Spike Lee you know he's, he's a great filmmaker and he's somebody who obviously deals with has had to deal with racism in his career but he hasn't had to deal with homophobia that's just another level of 
of um, suppression in a sense. I mean, there are there are other films. I mean, I think I remember in, in the early late eighties, is a British film, Looking for Langston, which is um, again it's it's kind of near queer cinema because it's it's arty and complex in terms of how it tells a story, but it's a reflection on um, black gay identity during nineteen twenties Harlem and. The person that he's looking for is Langston Hughes, who was a, a, a kind of poet, a black queer poet who lived in Harlem in the 1930s in New York. So it's also kind of about black history and it kind of ties in with, there's a, a more recent film called uh, Brother to Brother, um, about 2005, I think it was. And it's about, you know, it's about, it's a typical queer story, young black, black gay man thrown out of home for, you know, by his homophobic parents. He moves to Brooklyn and uh, he befriends this elderly gay man, black gay man, who turns out to have been a really big figure during the kind of Harlem resistance in the 1930s. And in the film, he talks about his friendship with Langston Hughes, which again connects back to um, looking for Langston. And so it, it explores black queer history and by kind of fusing those two times together, it demonstrates that the racism and homophobia that the main characters experiencing in the 21st century is comparable and not much has changed since the 1930s in a sense um, and I think just I think that's what's also interesting is that connection with history a lot of black queer cinema has that historical side to it it does have a kind of historical context and I, I think that's something the black community are very good at doing is exploring their history and yeah. I think the queer community generally is not very good at doing that we don't do we respect our elders do we listen to their stories do they and you know, I think cinema can be one way of doing that. So if you look back to some of the older gay films, those are our conversations we have with our elders about yeah. how things used yeah. to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think like, I, I don't know many um, films that have some sort of uh, POC representation and being queer, but I do know, for example, the TV show Elite, um, although mm -hmm. Elite has not been the best at representing certain things, especially when it comes to Muslim representation with um, sure. yeah. the female character. But it ha it was nice to see a character like Omar be gay and have to you know go through that and work that through himself. Um, but that also leads me to the question of, do you think that there's a big difference in representation in indie films and mainstream films? Because I feel like indie films tend to touch more on sensitive subjects that mainstream films wouldn't and um they have more freedom of expression yeah i think i think well again it's it's about budgets and finances and you you can be more um experimental and and explore more controversial topics if you're if you've got less money to lose or you have to make less money to make a profit in a sense and i think that the more the bigger the budget the less risks that are taken. That's just that's just logic, isn't it? I guess. Um, I mean, I think they, they serve different purposes. I mean, I think if you look back to a film like Philadelphia, um, Tom Hanks playing, you know, the the person dying of AIDS, and people look back on that and are maybe critical of it. But that that film wasn't aimed at the gay community. The game the gay community already knew what was going on. That was a film that was there to educate straight people, and the fact that Tom Hanks was involved in that film again brought in the finances meant, meant it reached a wide audience and of course meant you got an oscar you know and that's the other thing i think that for for uh, for many actors playing gay is a, is a good way to an award um, mm -hmm. play gay or play a serial killer and you'll get a, you'll get an oscar that's that's the, that's the message yeah. i think um but I, they do they do i guess mainstream and independent they do different things and I, I think there's a place for both i think 
I'm remembering a time when I went to see the film uh, In and Out, which mm -hmm. is um, from the 1990s, I think it was. And Kevin Klein plays this teacher who's outed by one of his students. So his student, uh, his ex-student is at the Oscars and has just won an award for playing a gay role in a film, even though he's straight. And he dedicates it to his teacher who's gay, who helped him understand the role. And this is news to Kevin Klein's character who thinks himself as being straight and he's engaged to get married. And so the film is about him exploring why do people think I'm gay? And then he begins to realize that it's because he is gay and he has all the obvious gay traits and he likes show tunes and you know he's very careful with his appearance. There's lots of stereotypes which are kind of quite funny. But I my experience of watching it in the cinema was here I'm in a group of people, we're all kind of laughing at the same jokes and we're all in the film together. And there's one moment where his character kisses uh, a gay journalist who's following the story, played by Tom Selleck. And it's a kind of passionate kiss, not for long. And some of the people around me say, oh, dirty, that's disgusting. Oh, that, you know, faggots. It was literally, and I was sitting there thinking, I don't belong here anymore. This is not yeah. somewhere where I feel comfortable. Yeah. So I think it's a reminder that sometimes with mainstream cinema, you know, it's, it's, it's safe because People aren't often ready. I, mean, I know that's a few years ago, but I still think the same response is happening. Oh, yeah, people absolutely. still have an abhorrence to some of the, you know, a, a fear of, of queer. Um, and yeah. I think that's why it's important for us to have our own space for cinema as well, where we can go and feel comfortable and safe 100%. and not have to go and sit in the multiplex, if you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think like it, it's interesting that you mentioned that as well with with the reaction that people had. It's it's funny because I feel like when when there's a typical uh gay movie that comes out people have well homophobic people have a negative reaction to it and then when it's a movie that's about say conversion therapy or something like that suddenly mm -hmm. the same homophobia were like oh these poor people and it's like but you can't root for one thing and not root for another thing it doesn't work that way yeah no i know i think you know, it's the same thing with you know there's films that you see they're they're, they're mainstream films that are kind of designed or certainly part of their purpose is to elicit sympathy for a queer cause and you know that's laudable mm. but it's, it, it can you know the problem is sometimes it just recycles harmful stereotypes you know even yeah. even something like Brokeback Mountain you know how queer is that really I don't know you know we go back to that one of your original questions about how do you define a queer movie and actually it's a straight director straight actors it's based on a novel written by straight women mm -hmm. or a short story written by straight women um is that really authentically queer? And yet it still serves a purpose. It's still, you know, connected an audience to non-normative sexuality in a way that, that they, with characters who they found engaging and believable. And, and yet it still recycles that same trope of early gay films, which is, you know, one of the characters is a violent death, mm -hmm. you know, and it's a sad ending, you know, because gay people don't have happiness. Dying. And, that thing, you know. and even something, I know we've talked about this before, but, you know, the film Love, Simon. But I mean, the... Yeah. I find that I, I can see both sides when I watch it. It's a gay director, and yet it's a very heteronormative view of what homosexuality is. Yeah. And yet, and I know that the, the, the actor who plays the, the lead role, Simon, although he's straight, he talked in an interview about the fact that him taking that role led his brother to come out. Mm -hmm. And so it served a function for him personally as well. And so there's another thing is Simon, the character the actor playing Simon has a gay brother. Does that then mean that he's it's more acceptable for him to play a gay role than, than, than an actor who's not got that kind of connection. You know, I don't, I don't know. It's, again, it's just- For me personally, um, Love, Simon is an interesting movie because I, I think I, I don't have much of a problem with um, the actor situation. I don't really mind 
who played the role of Simon. I think for me, it was just mainly the plot of the movie. It just, it, it didn't seem the most authentic kind of gay movie no. that I like to watch. And that's mainly just because I don't really like it when movies are spotlighting that like, look, that's a homosexual right there. Um, that's just not, you know, my typical. And, yeah, and also I thought that Ethan, the other gay character in the film was the more interesting of the two. I think <laughs> if it had been Love Ethan, it would have been a much more interesting film because Ethan was not heteronormative. You know, he was camp and also he was mixed race and there's all those other things about him that make him a far more interesting character. But again, it probably comes back to would the film have been as successful with that Exactly, yeah. And I mean, now context. there is there's the spin-off TV show Love, Victor, which has been getting yeah. a lot more... Um, yeah, I've watched a few of the episodes. Yeah, yeah, which because it's, it's, he's a Latino character, you know, so yeah. there's a sense that it's there's something more seems more authentic than the than the, the privileged white kid in the, in the first film. Yeah, for sure. And um, just to um, finalize the conversation, we talked about it before I started recording it, and we both realized we don't know what to talk about when it comes to soundtracks. <laughs> but right, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do, I, I think, I don't know, with a movie like, like Love, Simon, um, I found myself really interested in the soundtrack for the movie. And mm. I don't know if it helped because, um, for example, Troy Sivan, who is one of my favorite queer artists, had a song on the soundtrack. And maybe that kind of made me a little bit more interested. Um, I don't know. I feel like movies are such a, uh, songs in movies are such a big part of the movie itself that aren't really talked about. And people don't really realize how much they help the movie experience. And I've always wondered, would a fully queer soundtrack to a fully queer movie be beneficial? Would it make it a little bit more authentic? See that you're obsessed with this, aren't you? I am. <laughs> the, 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 the purest. I, mean, I started off by saying the purest form of a, of a queer movie was one that was made by queer creator about queer subject matter aimed at queer audience. And now on top of that, you want a queer soundtrack in there as well. I just want it to be queer. That's it. There's just no space left for any no. other point of view. That's no. that's you know, that's that's great. You know, some people might find that suffocating. I don't know, but no. no. No, I think I think um yeah I agree I think I think that would be interesting I think also the juxtaposition I think as I've said before I think the we think about it, we, we tend to focus on images when we talk about film and comfort and dialogue and often soundtrack is left to the side it's something that we don't really pay enough attention to and I, I guess um it's an interesting proposition what would happen if you had if you recut a film with a queer soundtrack so a heterosexual film that suddenly had take out all the straight music, straight artist music and put in queer music, does it suddenly change them? Does the juxtaposition of the of the of the soundtrack and the and the story and the images of the movie suddenly does that clash cause something interesting, something queer to happen in the film? So I, th I think I think your question is a is a really valid one and I think it's one that needs to be explored in more detail. I think the relationship between the image and the sound is is crucial in a movie. And I think yeah. if you're trying to tell a story that's queer, then having a queer soundtrack, you know, is is really important. A really important Absolutely. aspect of that, I think. But then, then we get into the same different. You've got the same question to ask of music as you have a film. What is a queer song? What is a queer soundtrack? Yeah. Uh, is it, you know, is that a queer artist or is it kind of kind of track become queer because of how it's been interpreted? So something like um, you know, somewhere over the rainbow from um, mm -hmm. from the Wizard of Oz. It's not a queer song, but, it but has it's kind of become queer anthem in yeah. a sense you know and the, the very fact that even judy garland because of their, her association you know with 
the Stonewall riots and all the other yeah. things that happened, you know, that takes on a new, mm-hmm. uh, a new uh, identity, I guess, in terms of being a queer sound soundtrack. And so I think, I think you've just opened another kind of worms, to be honest. I'm not yeah, sure whether they're queer worms. They might not be queer worms, but they're certainly a mixture. They're a type of worms, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's like, as well with um, with Call Me By Your Name, obviously a very controversial movie, so many different opinions about that movie. I personally am a fan, but um, I think one thing that really sells the movie for me is the soundtrack. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not, I don't think Sir John Stevens is a part of the queer community. I'm not sure, um, but the music on the soundtrack is so explicitly queer at this point because everyone associates mystery of love to queer uh, to call me by your name and visions of gideon to call me by your name and i don't know something about that just makes it because so that's, that's interesting what seeing is there's a there's a, a, a soundtrack or a piece of music that that wasn't queer but its association with the film it then becomes queer you know so yeah. it's again it's, it's complicated i think you know that, that suggests that something can be queered by association but yeah that that about brings it to an end really um thank you so much for doing this thank you. because i feel like no it was a pleasure i feel like i need to go and watch some old queer films now and get my history in. <laughs> I, should, I should put a, i should put a playlist up or something please honestly if you do that i will absolutely watch them <laughs> Because, I mean, you already know I'm doing my dissertation on them anyway, so I might as well just get started now. Yeah. Um, yeah, but thank you so much for joining. And uh, thank you guys so much you. for listening. And I will see you next Wednesday. Or third, Friday, Wednesday, Friday. <laughs> I've lost track of days. <laughs>